Samuel 15. The whole theme of the book of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And we've been looking at lots of different hearts. In particular, we've been looking at Saul's heart. Um, that's interesting when we see that we have all these lessons from the heart. When you think of, we read about in our scripture reading where Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our heart, our own heart's more deceitful than anything else out there, right? That it's incurably sick. That's what desperately wicked means. That we can't even understand our own heart and thus should trust the Lord instead, right? In light of that, the question kind of comes up naturally, though, then why does the heart matter so much to God? If, I mean, if it's just a lost cause, like why, does it, why is it so important to God? You know, why, why does the Scripture talk about David being a man after God's own heart? And, you know, and, and why does it talk about the, you know, the negatives of when our heart's not for the Lord? Why does God say in the very next verse in Jeremiah 17, in Jeremiah 17, 10, that he searches the heart and he tests it in order to reward or judge every man? Well, there's another scripture that talks about the heart, and it comes from our perspective. If you look at Psalm 139 with me, I want to read verses 23 and 24, and I want that to kind of be the backdrop of our study tonight. Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and then we'll look at 1 Samuel 15, and we'll work our way through Chapter 16, verse 13. But Psalm 139, a psalm written by David, at the very end, he prays these, these two verses. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that interesting? Even though our hearts are incurably sick on our own, if we cry out to the Lord to purge our heart of those wicked things, if we yield our heart to the Lord, He can change it so that we will love Him supremely with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That we will follow Him in that way everlasting. And it is no mistake that David is the one who writes these verses because he's the one, the Bible says, is the man after God's own heart, unlike Saul. And so tonight, we're going to see that contrast and why God chooses David over Saul. So 1 Samuel 15, let's pick it up in verse 24. The context, of course, is um, God sent uh, Saul out to uh, wipe out the Amalekites, and Saul brings back their king, brings back all the spoils of war when God told him, don't do any of that. And so, you know, when Samuel confronts him about this, Saul says, I, I brought it to give it to the Lord. And that's when Samuel utters the, those famous words, obedience is better than sacrifice, and uh, to hearken is better than the fat of rams, because rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is like iniquity and, do, and idolatry. And so he tells me, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, he has rejected you from being king. And so here we see Saul's response to that. In verse 24, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And it's because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray you, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Here we see Saul's, we're going to make two confessions here, his first confession to Samuel and, and prior to Samuel's explanation that obedience is better than sacrifice, Saul 
up to that point, had kept, he kept insisting, I did nothing wrong, I did nothing wrong, I did nothing wrong, I did what God told me to do. So this is a good change, right? That now he goes, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord uh, and your words. It, it, you know, the phrase transgress means to cross over a line. I crossed a line that God set, and, and not only that, I didn't listen to you either. And this might even harken back to, to Saul's failure way back in Gilgal when Samuel said, wait for me to do the offerings. It might be a reference to that. Saul might be referencing everything that's happened up to this point. And so we say, well, that's a good thing, right? Well, if Saul followed up this confession with repentance, it would be a good thing. But he doesn't. And to see that, that kind of a disconnect where he confesses but he doesn't repent, we have to keep looking at what he, actually look at what he confesses first here and then see his actions after he confesses. He explains why he really did this. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So why did Saul disobey the Lord? Why did he bring Agag back? The same reason he's been doing everything up to this point after that battle with the Philistines. He is terrified of losing his kingdom. He does not want anything to make him vulnerable. He's going to hold on to his position at any cost, even if it means disobeying the Lord. And so he is scared that the people would turn against him, and so he listened to them instead of listening to the Lord. The phrase there, to fear, means to show profound respect for someone or something. Saul's sin was being more afraid of losing the people's favor than losing God's favor. And you know, Proverbs 29, 25 is that famous verse about the fear of man being a, a snare, a trap. But, but it has a little bit more to it. In Psalm 29, 25, it starts off like that where it says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whosoever puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. That's the the counter to that, you know. It it warns us about the mindset of fearing man and letting our fear of man, you know, cause us to make the decisions we make, but instead, we're to do what the Bible says. We're to trust the Lord, trust what He says instead. And so, when someone is confessing their sin and they agree they've done something wrong, there's a right way that you would respond. If you, you really mean it, then there's a right way you'll respond with it. And the right way for Saul to respond to this confession, I blew it, I feared the people instead of fearing the Lord, the right thing was to say, Samuel, from now on I'm not going to worry about what the people think. What God thinks about me will matter the most, right? I mean, that's, if he's really confessing and ready to change, that's, that's what he should do, Right? But that's not what Saul does next. In fact, he persists in his sinful mindset. Look at verse 25. Now, therefore, in other words, well, I've done my part. (laughs) Now, therefore, I pray you, pardon my sin, which is fine. But then he says this, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Therefore, I put it out there, I've owned it. So, Please forgive me, and then come back with me to the celebration, the big, huge party we're having, and, and so we can take all these animals that we you know, took from the Amalekites that God told us not to take, and we can worship the Lord with them. What? That'd be like, you know, <clears throat> that'd be like, you know, well, let me try to think of something less, less painful. Um, you know, sometimes illustrations come to your mind that you don't plan out, and they don't work out so good. That was going to be one of them. Um. You know, for example, it might be like, um, you know, if, if your kids are, you know, okay, I'll tell a story. <clears throat> I had a kid. And this child, you know, there would be, when they were younger, very young, you know, there would be times when we would pull them aside because of something that was wrong. 
you know, and, and they would look at you and they would say, oh, okay, mom, or okay, dad. And then two minutes later, they were doing it again. And, and you know, it, this is kind of like that. You know, it's kind of like, didn't we just have a conversation about this? Like, didn't we just talk about how this is no bueno, right? This is no good, Saul. And Saul's like, yeah, I get it. You're right. You're right. I messed up. So, you know, can you please forgive me? And, and, and let's go back and, and party. You just kind of go, you know, kind of like the dog, you know, just kind of looks at you like something's wrong here, you know? What, what do you mean going back to the celebration? Everything's wrong about this celebration. How can Saul think this is worship when he's just admitted his sin? Because he never really changed his mind about it being sin, even though he acknowledged to Samuel that it was wrong. You see, confession is only one side of getting things right with God. It's only one side of this concept we call repentance. The other side of that coin, or the other side of, of, of repentance and confession, is turning around and going a new direction. In Proverbs 28, 13, it, it makes it really clear, you know, what someone who really desires to walk with the Lord does. It says in Proverbs 28, 13, he that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall find mercy, shall have mercy. You know, confessing and forsaking are, are, are entwined. You can't just separate them. You know, if I, you know, if I keep telling my wife, you know, when I hurt her, or I'm unkind to her, I, my kids, and, and, you know, and, and I, I say, hey, listen, that was wrong for daddy to do that, or hey, that was wrong for me to do that, will you please forgive me, you know? And, and then I, I just keep doing it over and over and over again. At some point, you're going to go, I'm not sure you're serious about this. I'm not sure you mean what you say. And, and so, it's not just about saying that you blew it, which is important, it's a part of it, because whosoever covers his sins won't prosper, but forsaking them is important too. You know, frequently when people will come to me with, with you know, challenges that they're having with sin in their lives, whatever it might be, could be gossip, could be this, could be that, you know, at some point, you know, we have to come to a place where we have the talk like, okay, so where do you go from here? Like, I'm glad this, you're here. I'm glad we're talking about this, but where do you go now? You know, what, what do you mean? Well, what are you going to do? Like, what's going to be different from this moment forward? What needs to change so that this is not something that continues? And then, of course, sometimes you're like, whoa, well, well I need to do this. I'm like, praise the Lord. Let's pray about it. Let's make that commitment to the Lord right now. And that's a good thing. But then every once in a while, you kind of get the, oh, oh, like, like I got to change? And, and I don't, they don't say that, but that's the idea of like, well, I, so what, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, if it's a, you know, if it's a gossip issue, like you need to get like an accountability partner, somebody who can, you know, chat. Every time they see you starting to chat, they go, bro, no good, you know, and that you're, 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 you're listening to their input, you know, or, or, you know, whatever the problem might be that you, you're doing something to, to begin to build up the hole in the wall, to, to plug the hole in the wall like Nehemiah did so that the enemy can't get in anymore. At some point, if, if you're not willing to pick up the shovel, then you have to ask the question if, it's really the hole in the wall that bothers you or just the consequences of there being a hole in the wall. And there is a difference between those two things. You know, Saul broke the Lord's heart by turning to go his own way. We read about that in 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. So how can Saul expect Samuel to leave the Lord to go the same direction that broke God's heart? How can he expect that Samuel would go with him in that? You see, the right response was for Saul to get up and go, hey, guys, this whole thing's wrong. Instead of 
having some sacrifice to God and pretending like we're giving it to Him just so we can have a party. We're going to all have a time of repentance right now, and we're going to make this right. But that's not what Samuel did, or Saul did. And so when Saul asked Samuel to do this, Samuel says, no, I'm not going. Samuel said to the Lord, I will not return with you, verse 26, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Have, present tense. You're still rejecting God's word. Saul, you haven't changed anything. I know you've admitted you've done wrong, but you haven't changed anything. I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You know, I think I mentioned this last week, but it's worth saying again. God did not reject Saul because he sinned, all right? God rejected Saul because Saul refused to yield his heart to the Lord. He refused to repent. And we are going to, we're going to be with Saul for quite some time still, even though God's rejected him from being king because Saul refuses to abdicate the throne. We are going to see this cycle of Saul confessing his sin but never repenting over and over and over and over throughout his life, all the way to the end at his death. Saul did not have a heart of repentance, and that is what made him unfit to be used by God. God can use people who make mistakes. God can use people who fail. God can restore people who fail. But if I refuse to repent, it makes me unfit to be used by the Lord. And so Saul proves that he's unwilling to change uh, direction with his next action. Verse 27, when Samuel says, no, I'm not going to go. It says, as Samuel turned about to go away, Saul laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, the uh, bottom part of, of Samuel's robe. He grabbed it, and it tore. It tore. The bottom of his robe tore off. And Samuel says to him, the Lord has rent the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours that is better than you. Those are words that usually get somebody killed when you say them to the king. God has taken, torn the kingdom from you just like you've torn my robe. You know, Samuel's the prophet to the people, and, and Saul didn't care. He's like, you're not going anywhere, man. And Saul's like, you can rip my robe to pieces, but the truth is that's what God's doing to your kingdom right now. And not just that. He's going to give it to your, another fellow countryman who is better than you. The word there, better, means more pleasing, more pleasing to the Lord, obviously, than you have been, Saul. In other words, there is another Israeli out there who was better than the man who stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. That was Saul's qualifications, right? Stood head and shoulders above every man. There was an Israeli out there who was better than that because he was someone who would obey God, which is much better than Saul's approach. Here's the truth, guys. No matter how skilled someone is, no matter how their natural ability or even their gifting from God, an obedient man or woman will always please God more. I've been doing this now. I've been a pastor. For, this is my 25th year of being a pastor. And in 25 years, I've seen some incredibly talented people come and go. I've watched some people come across my path, and I thought, Lord, man, that guy can teach, or man, that gal can sing, or man, they, they have a way with the kids, or man, man, they can share their faith. I wish I could share my faith like that. I have seen pastors, leaders, worship leaders, you name it. I've seen people all over the place come and go with incredible talent. But if they don't have obedience, they do not last long. And the problem is they're like a wrecking ball in the house of God because they leave a bunch of broken believers in their wake. How many times do you, 
But by the grace of God, there go any of us. But how many times do we have to read the story about a pastor who's fallen? Too many. Too many. And the problem, the problem isn't so much, I mean, it's horrible what they've done and horrible the pain they may have caused to their families or you know, those who are closest to them and, and to their own lives spiritually. But all too often, people walk away from the Lord. They walk away from the church because of that. And they want nothing to do with the Lord anymore. So no matter how skilled someone is, no matter their natural ability or gifting from God, an obedient man or woman will always, always please God more. I, as a pastor of 25 years, will gladly take the less talented, less skilled, less anointed person who will just obey Jesus. Gladly do that. Now, Samuel warned Saul about this when he disobeyed God at Gilgal. He warned him. He said, Saul, God is taking the kingdom from you. If you're going to live like this, he will take the kingdom from you. But Saul really believed with all his heart that God would eventually give in. He would eventually come around to his way of thinking. He, he doesn't know what it's like to be king. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. You know, he, he will eventually come around to my way of thinking. And so Samuel makes it very clear in verse 29 that repentance and change is something we do, not something God does. In verse 29, he says, and also, this other point, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a, son, he is not a man that he should repent. I love that. The strength of Israel means the glory of Israel. What a great title for God. He's the glory of Israel, you know? Not you, Saul. The kingdom, you may come and go, but the kingdom's going to go on because the king of kings is still on the throne and nothing moves him. He's Israel's glory. You're the one that's supposed to move, Saul, not the Lord. And so the glory of Israel, he will not lie. The word there means to be unfaithful, to be false, to betray us. The glory of Israel, our God, he will never be unfaithful to us. He will not lie to us. He will not betray us. He will not be false. And nor does he repent. The word there means to reconsider or change one's opinion concerning truth. God will not reconsider his position about truth ever, and he will not change his opinion about truth ever. Now, first off, what a great promise that God will never betray you, amen? That's great to know. He will never promise to do something and fail to do it, never. I can always count on him. And do you know that? I mean, do you know that? Where even in those moments where... Um, yeah, there was a song back in the day, really old, so none of y'all probably know it, but it's called Yet Will I Praise. And it just talked about all the things that can happen to us, and then the decision of the songwriter was, Yet Will I Praise You More. Yet Will I Praise You, Lord. And I loved that song. Because there are times when we see things that challenge the promises of God, don't they? Like we look out and we go, Whoa, Lord, that doesn't seem to fit with your promises or, 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 or the things you say. You know, this seems to, to, to not work with that. How, how does this fit? And it's in those moments, you know, where we say, well, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Yet will I praise you. Yet will I trust you. God will never betray us. Do you know that? And then second, what a serious rebuke to Saul. 
And to any of us who would think that we could somehow get God to go along with our plans, you know, God never changes his opinion about truth, never. You know, he doesn't look at my unique situation and think, well, maybe I should budge on this idea, you know. I mean, nobody's ever gone through what Will's going through right now. The Lord never does that. Like, he never does that. You know, he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, you know, the cool part is we, we look at that on the good side. And we go, Amen. He's faithful to his promises. He, you know, he always sticks beside us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Yes. It also means sin is still sin. <laughs> it also means unrighteousness is still unrighteousness. Lying is still lying. Theft is still theft. Adultery is still adultery. All these things are still all the, those things. Right is still right and wrong is still wrong. You know, and by saying that to Saul, he's saying, Saul, the problem is, is you, this is why God's rejected you. You still don't get it. You still won't get it. You still need to repent. And yet, Saul doesn't. Verse 30, we see his second confession. Then he said, I have sinned. He just goes back to where he was before. Yet honor me now, I pray you, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord your God. It's like it goes in one ear out the other, like it never happened, and he just repeats what he said the last time. And he even could, I have sinned, and then he confesses, I'm still sinning. I mean, it's almost like what he's saying. I, I did this, I sinned because I feared the people, and I still fear the people. <laughs> so can you please come with me in front of all the people and have like a show of solidarity so that, you know, things don't just fall apart right here? Because I'm not ready to call it all off. I'm not ready to end the celebration because I'm pretty sure they'll skewer me. Another confession, but still no change. And he even gives an excuse about why he refuses to change. He says, I know I haven't fixed things with the Lord, but that's not going to fix the fix I'm in here. Samuel, if you walk off, it'll completely discredit me. So do this so things look like they're still good, even though they aren't. We'll, go, we'll try to figure out something from here. And then Samuel does, I have to be frank, one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in the Bible. He agrees this time. After he tells him he won't. He agrees this time. Why? Well, Samuel's a better man than I am. That's one reason why. I'll give you two reasons, though. First, because even though returning to the celebration was not going to accomplish any good for Saul as king, Samuel's love and mercy for Saul might do something good for Saul the man. Might not fix Saul the king, but somehow maybe it might do something for Saul the man. There are many times in my life when I've wanted to hit someone with a two-by-four because they were not right with the Lord and they were not going to get right with the Lord. And I was there for them, even though I didn't agree with what they were doing. And my hope in those situations is that they would see my interest in their life and that it would melt their hearts so they might actually listen to what I'm saying. Now, there are, of course, times to say no to such opportunities because doing so would lead us to disobey the Lord. And I've done that too, where I've said, you know what, no, I can't. But there are times to say yes. And so my encouragement to you would be, in those moments, search the Scriptures and pray a lot about those decisions and do what the Lord tells you to do. The second reason that Samuel does this because even though Saul would not repent and fix the wrongs that were done this day, 
Samuel still could fix at least one of the wrongs that was done this day. Look at verse 32. And then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag, it says, came unto him delicately. Uh, the word there means actually confidently. Like delicately, kind of I think of like a scared, but it's not. It's like a saunter in. Like the worst is past, you know? And that's how he, his attitude is. It says here, um, they, you know, Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. You know, he, the word there uh, delicately, means, delicately means walking in a way that exudes either boldness or calmness. He didn't have a care in the world. He didn't think he was in any trouble. You know, he, he figures, oh, their, their prophet, their spiritual leader just wants to see me in chains, right? Wrong. <laughs> Verse 33, and Samuel said, as thy sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's a little brutal. And you got to remember, Samuel's not a warrior. He's a priest. Like he's, a, he's, he's used to butchering animals. You know? He's not used to fighting soldiers or doing anything like this. This is, this is another kind of butchering that he does here. The word to hack or hew in pieces, it simply means to execute. So I don't know if he actually hacked them in pieces, but it was an execution for sure. And you know, it's interesting the words that Samuel says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be made childless among women, which means Samuel somehow knew that Saul did not kill all the Amalekites because he mentions his mother still being alive. I don't know how Samuel knew that, but he makes the comment here. And it's very interesting because, you know, Saul's like, hey, will you come and, come and make an offering with the Lord with me and let everybody know everything's fine? And he's like, I'll give you an offering. You want me to make an offering? Fine, I'll make an offering of obedience. I'll do what you won't. And so Samuel kills Agag, executes him, and then he leaves. <laughs> and then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gabeah of Saul. And it tells us in verse 35, kind of like a postscript, and Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. When Samuel leaves the celebration, he does not stomp off angrily. He leaves with a shattered heart. Because his friend, someone he loved deeply, someone he had worked side by side with, they go their separate ways from that time forward. They never work together again. And so they go to their respective homes. Samuel to Ramah, his home. Saul to Gabeah, his home. And they never see each other again until Saul's death because there was nothing to talk about because the old Saul, as far as Samuel was concerned, was already dead. There was nothing to work together about anymore because Saul wasn't going to work with the Lord. And so instead, Samuel mourned for Saul. And you know, when your anger ends in weeping for that person you're angry at, that it's the right kind of anger. Because that's the same anger Jesus displayed after he cleansed the temple. You know, I'm fascinated by people who like to bring up the cleansing of the temple, using it as an excuse to do violence or to fight. I never see those people weeping afterwards. Never. Because that's not the Lord. It's not how he does things. You know, I think of the scripture where it says that there's not even a a bird that falls to the ground and he's not there 
We teach a little differently. They say, oh, there's not a bird that falls to the ground. He doesn't know it. That's not what the Bible says. It says there's not a bird that falls to the ground without the Lord. He's there. The Lord's there. You know, my daughter asked me today, she said, she said, Daddy, do, do animals understand death? And I said, well, enough to not want to di- experience it. I said, but no, I don't think they understand, like, the concept that they're going to die someday or, or, you know, I don't think they understand those things. They're not wired like we are. And yet, even for a creature that, you know, is experiencing the last breaths of their life, that the Lord would be near. You know, the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish. His soul takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even then, there, he's, he's probably near. And that's the heart of God. And we know it is because he tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who, you know, persecute us and despitefully use us. Certainly, we can never claim that our anger is righteous if we're not weeping for that person afterward. Chapter 16, the weeping goes on for a while, so much that the Lord has to tell Samuel, enough's enough. And the Lord said unto Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? So apparently some time passes between chapter 15 and 16 where Samuel is just in mourning. He is grieving over the loss of Saul. Now, the word mourn there means a passionate expression of grief, and they are very expressive in the Middle East when they grieve. Samuel has been weeping for who knows how long. He loved Saul. He was so deeply devastated by Saul's disobedience that he didn't want to move on. And in Samuel's mind, he keeps thinking, there's got a way we can make this work with Saul. There's got to be a way I can talk to him. There's got to be something. He just, he can't move on. But there wasn't a way. And so the Lord reminds Samuel that I've got a new job for you to do, Samuel. You already told Saul that there's a better neighbor, a better countryman that I've picked, and it's time to go anoint him. The Lord says to him, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? So go fill your horn with oil. They, they used animal horns back then for uh, containers. And so he says, take that you know, container, fill it with oil, anointing oil. And go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Uh, the word that provided actually means I have seen. God saw something that pleased him, saw something that, that he loved, that he said, I can work with this. And it was one of Jesse the Bethlehemite's sons. Now, Bethlehem, of course, is a place we saw before in the book of Ruth, Right? Bethlehem is Ruth and Boaz's hometown. Jesse is a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. Uh, Bethlehem is just a few miles south of Jerusalem, so it's not far from Samuel's home. But Samuel does have an issue with this command from God because to get to Bethlehem, he has to travel past Saul's home. And so in verse 2, Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. Now, you have to understand something. I don't think Samuel is saying, Lord, I can't go because Saul will kill me. I think Samuel's asking an honest question. How do you want me to do this because Saul's going to kill me if he finds out I'm anointing someone else to be king? There's a big difference between that. And so how can I go is literally, Lord, how do, how do you want me to pull this off? And so the Lord explains, I want you to take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint unto me him whom I will name unto you. So, Again, you have to look here and, and how far things have come that Samuel is in real danger that Saul might kill him. I mean, Samuel had had Saul's back every step, even when others in the nation did not. 
how could two people who had been so close now be so far apart that Samuel has to fear for his life? Well, because holding on to what Saul had achieved had become more important to Saul than following the Lord. And that is always a dangerous place to be when you're in a relationship with someone who holding on to something they've achieved, something they have, is more important than following the Lord. Because they will sacrifice everything and anything at that point to maintain what they have, even if it's you. Saul, we saw when he was vulnerable in that first battle with the Philistines, he became ruthless afterwards in protecting his position. He fought war after war after war with every nation around him to secure the borders of the kingdom and to secure his position. Ripping Samuel's robe at their last encounter was a huge sign of disrespect to Samuel. And it showed just how entrenched Saul was in, it was, uh, um, was in holding on to his kingdom. And when you add that Saul refused to repent, that he would hold on to his disobedience as well, Samuel had very good reason to think that Saul might kill him if he found out he was anointing his replacement. And so again, Samuel's not saying, I won't go. He's sincerely asking for help on how to obey. And so the Lord tells him what to do. And so Samuel does it. Verse 4. And Samuel did that which the Lord spoke. And he came to Bethlehem. (laughs) And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And he goes, yeah, peaceably. (laughs) He said, peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. So sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. So you have to remember, when, what happened the last time Samuel was out in public? I mean, what's the last image that everybody in the nation has of Samuel? It's not the nice Samuel that they came to counsel for, you know, and they, they came with their sacrifices for at the tabernacle and whatever. That's not the last Samuel they saw. The last Samuel they saw was hacking King Agag into pieces. So when he shows up at your doorstep the next time, you're probably thinking, why are you here? You know, it's for example, it's like what I usually get when I text someone, you know, and I say, hey, can we get together? Oftentimes they come into my office and I'm like, Pastor Will, I didn't do it. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't do it? You know, well, you know, I was thinking, I was like, why is Pastor Will texting me? I'm like, why do everyone think they're always in trouble when I text them? I haven't hacked anyone into pieces lately. But the idea is that image is a little bit overwhelming, of course. That's not what you expect your spiritual leader to do. And so it was, you know, a little unnerving. And so when he comes there and they, next, I mean, that's the last image in their mind. You hear uh, peaceably, you know, the idea is, uh, you know, <laughs> you after somebody else? And, uh, and, and he says, I'm here peaceably. The word there means shalom. I'm here for blessing. I'm here for good. I'm, I'm, here, I'm here for, you know, for peace, your, your well-being, you know. And he explains, I'm not here to kill anybody, and I'm not even here to, you know, to take anything you have. I'm here, I brought my own offering. I've got my own heifer, and, and, and we're going to sacrifice it, and just want to worship the Lord together with you. And so he tells them, sanctify yourselves. Make sure you're all ceremonially pure. There were certain rituals that Jews had to go through to participate in these types of events. He says, make sure you're ceremonially, ceremonially pure so you can participate. And, uh, and then Samuel picks Jesse to be the host for the dinner celebration afterwards. And so... He's going to go to Jesse's home to make sure they're all ritually pure, to make sure so that it can be at the house. 
And, uh, and when he gets to Jesse's house, Samuel starts, because God hasn't told him which son it is, he starts measuring up the sons, verse 6. And it came to pass when they arrived that he looked on Eliab and said, Ha, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. You know, he saw Eliab, and Eliab is Jesse's oldest son. Uh, and again, in that culture, um, that is the position of honor in the family, the guy who gets the double blessing. And, and it appears he had all the natural tools, just like Saul, because the Lord himself mentions uh, not to look at height again afterwards. So, I mean, this guy's kind of like the spitting image of Saul. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Saul blew it, but here's a good replacement right here. And that's what Samuel's thinking when Eliab comes up. And the Lord, he says, surely, indeed, this is the one. And the Lord says, nope. <laughs> the Lord said unto Samuel, do not look on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him or rejected him. The phrase, do not look on his countenance, means don't come to a conclusion based on what you can detect from his appearance with your own eyes. Don't come to a conclusion based on what you can detect from his appearance with your eyes. I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart matters to God. That's what matters to him. God doesn't make decisions like we do. He, the one who knows everything and can see past the outward appearance, makes decisions based on what he sees in a person's heart. And so as I said earlier, natural skills, natural talent sets, they are not as important to God as the condition of a person's heart. The Lord uses not necessarily talented people or even people who've honed their skill sets. The Lord uses people who've asked him to search their heart and to purge out the wickedness that's there people who have yielded to him and their hearts to him above all else. And that's why David, when we see him in Psalm 139, praying, search me, O God, search my heart, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. We see such a contrast from Saul. What a difference between Saul, his heart, which is stubborn and proud and unmoving, expecting God to move, and David's heart, which is, Lord, I don't even know what's in there, but you do. Search it out. And if there's anything yucky in there, get it out. And then lead me in the right direction. My heart is yours. What a difference. And so, Jesse calls his next son, Abinadab. Apparently, at this point, Jesse was in on Samuel's plan. Jesse calls Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and then he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, a lot of boys. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. None of these qualify. And so at that point, Samuel says to Jesse, are here all your children? I mean, is anybody missing? And Jesse answers, he goes, well, there remains yet the youngest but behold, he keeps the sheep. <laughs> Keeping the sheep is the equivalent of sitting at the kids' table at the celebration. You know? Like when you were the kid, the goal was always to get to the adult table, right? You know, and it was always one of those moments where, you know, you're like, you got your plate and you're headed towards the adult table, and mom and dad are like, you're over there. And you're like, oh, man. You know? That's David. He's the youngest. You know? And is this all of them? Yeah, I got one more, but he's at the kids' table. I mean, you know what that means. 
He's keeping the sheep. That was a servant's job, not a son's job. David is the last person anyone would have chosen to be the honored member of the feast. Yet, God often chooses unlikely people to do his work, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul himself, who was one of the wise, was one of the mighty. All his education, all his training in the ways of a Pharisee, he says this, though, in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, for you see your calling, brethren. Consider, look out, look out all the people who God's called to do service to him. And notice something, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble are called. Not many who have the, what they consider the best blood, you know, the, from the noble families. Not many, you know, that are mighty. They, they have all this power and strength. Not many wise men. They've got all this education and, you know, and, and, and accolades. But instead, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things, the insignificant things of the world, and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God chooses the unlikely, often to do his work. How different David is from Saul, who was the cream of the crop in Israel, and yet, Samuel is a man who hears God's words and he does what God says. And so he tells him, dinner's not starting until this unlikely guy arrives. He says to him, send and fetch him for we're not gonna sit down until he comes here. I need to hear from the Lord. And so Jesse sent and back here in 1 Samuel sixteen twelve, he sent for David and we don't know his name yet, we'll learn it later, but he sent for David and brought him in and here's Samuel's first impression of David. He says, now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to, perfect Hollywood qualifications, but not exactly king material in the Middle East. Ruddy means he had red hair. Black hair was the norm in that day, so red hair was regarded as a mark of beauty. The phrase that he had a beautiful countenance, it means he had attractive eyes. And the fact that he was goodly uh, to look to, it means that he, was, he had beautiful appearance. He had a good figure, you know. So David was either a cutie or a hottie, one of the two. <laughs> either a cutie or a hottie. Either somebody would look at, oh, you're adorable, or he'd be like, woo, you're going to make some lady happy someday. One of those two. But neither of those things was material. Neither of those things was material that you would pick a king for back then. If you pick a king, you want somebody who's big and tall and strong and intimidating and has a commanding presence and people follow as soon as they see him, you know? Every time we see David at the start, what's always happening? His brothers are always kicking him to the curb, you know? What are you doing here? I'm bringing you lunch, man. I know why you're here. You're not here to bring us lunch. You're here to spy out the battle. Every moment, David's not the guy that inspired people to go, what a good, awesome leader, you know? That's not him, in fact, there's a simplicity to David, uh, almost naivete. He's not even aware of like 
the strengths that he actually has half the time when we first meet him. But he's a man, a young man, who had learned to trust the Lord. So, while David may qualify for all the great leaders in the Hollywood films, David wasn't a big guy, didn't have a commanding presence. He was just a nice-looking young man. Now, go take care of the sheep. But God had different plans for David, and he tells Samuel his search is over. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And so then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. No one else had arrived at the dinner yet, so this is still a private family affair. They're the only ones that know about this. And look at what the Bible says. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Bye, David. I would love to know if they had talked at all, because remember last time when Samuel anointed Saul, him and Saul talked all night. We don't have any of that here. We don't have any record of any of that. In fact, Samuel's interaction with David is very minimal. David's kind of on his own by comparison. It's almost like maybe Samuel thought to himself, I don't want to get that close because I don't want to get hurt again. I don't know. But I do think it's important before we close out tonight to look at this concept because it says that God poured out his spirit upon David from that day forward because that's exactly the same thing God did for Saul, right? The Bible says that God poured out his spirit upon Saul and Saul became a different man from that point forward. God did the same exact empowering for David. David became a different man from this point forward just like God had done for Saul. Why is that important? Because it shows us why the heart matters to God. God gave Saul and David the same resources to succeed at the task that God gave them. The same exact resources. God turned them both into different men by his spirit. The only difference was the condition of the two hearts. David will become a man after God's own heart. Someone who asked God to search his heart, asked God to clean it out, asked God to lead him in the right path and followed him down that path, even when he stumbled and fell from, fell from time to time. In contrast, Saul hardened his heart through stubbornness, despite all of God's repeated efforts to reach him. So, the heart does matter to God. And so my question to you tonight is, have you yielded your heart to the Lord? You know, or are you being stubborn and defiant? You know, I understand that we all fail. God knows our frame that we're simply dust. Praise the Lord for that. But the condition of our heart is important. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? They are incurably sick on our own. But the Lord can give us a new heart. You know, he can, he can fill us with his spirit. He can cleanse our hearts and he can, you know, put a, a new desire in us. He can, you know, put his desires in our hearts and he can lead us in a way that's everlasting. All we have to do is yield our hearts to him. Let's all stand. Lord, you know every heart that's here tonight. You know where we're at, what we're struggling with, Lord. Lord, it's not that Saul's challenges weren't real. I mean, Lord, we can see that he was afraid. He is always thinking that people were going to bail on him, always going to betray him. And, and Lord, he had, he had some good reason for that because they had deserted him in the past. When he first became king, we, we know that he'd experienced not exactly this vote of confidence. But Lord, whatever we've gone through, we can't, you tell us not to trust 
lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you with all our heart, to look to you and that you can make our, a straight path for us, a direction to go, even amidst all those fears and shortcomings and, and disappointments. So Lord, you know what we're all going through right now. You know what we're all facing. You know the fears we might have. You know the temptations we might be facing. But Lord, our decision tonight is we say, here's my heart. Lord, if there's anything wicked and yucky in there, clean it out. Search me, oh God. Know our hearts. You know, see if there's anything wicked there. Clean it out. And then, Lord, fill it with you. Fill it with your spirit. And lead us in your way everlasting. That's our prayer tonight, Lord. We thank you that you're faithful to answer it. In Jesus' name, amen.